What's up, family? Create and Orchestrate is out now. It was a number one Amazon bestseller in six categories, including entrepreneurship. And you can buy it today on Amazon. You can get the Kindle edition. You can get the paperback. You can get the hardcover. And you can also put in an order for a signed hardcover, as well as some commemorative t-shirts at creativepower.co. You can buy it either at Amazon or you can get the special stuff over at creativepower.co. Now for another episode of Marcus Whitney's Audio Universe. This is Marcus Whitney's Audio Universe. Like you got to do the work. You got to show up and just do the work. What's up? Happy Friday. How's everybody doing? Another episode of Marcus Whitney Live. We're taking us out this uh, this week with a fun conversation. Uh, this is another one of my new friends. Man, my, uh, my guy David Deese at Nexus has just hooked me up with all these new friends over the last couple of months. And uh, uh, Oliver and I, we, 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 uh, we got on the phone. We started talking about venture capital. We started talking about hip hop. This guy knows Rozelle, which is like, you know, that's like real deal, like hip hop fiend stuff. Like if you know about 90s hip hop and the roots, you, you know about the incredible beatboxer that Rozelle is. And, and Oliver has some beatboxing skills and and uh, anyway, it was just like a super fun conversation. I was like, man, I got to get you on the show. We got to uh, spend some time talking a little bit more about how we're living in this moment as venture capitalists, as entrepreneurs, as, uh, you know, both people. He, he lives in New York. I'm originally from New York. So I just thought I would be a great person to, to bring on to the show. So without further ado, introducing Oliver Libby. Oliver, what's going on, man? Hey, Marcus. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited. I, the best conversations and friendships have all these different angles and just we're vibing together. And I really enjoyed the conversation. I have to say, you mentioned two of my favorite people, David Dietz, amazing. Razel, one of the legends. But the best moment for me when I met Razel was to kind of dig up on my phone all the tracks I had from Make the Music 2000 and, and tell him, you know, all the stuff I'd listened to back in the day such a great guy. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm really happy to be here. And you know, I don't know what gave away New York uh, to people, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, love my city. And, and, uh, you know, so glad you're from there as well. Um, yeah, you know, just a quick, quick background, I guess. Uh, um, you know, I, as you said, I'm a venture capitalist by trade, uh, I'm a managing partner and one of the two co founders of uh, uh, what's called Hatsi Mamos Libby. And so to save everyone pronouncing it, we just call it HL Ventures. Uh, <laughs> We're one of the early venture studios, one of the first, probably the first that was focused on impact and diversity. Uh, so we really help co-build companies. I'm sure we'll talk about that a little bit. Um, and then and then actually within a month of starting that, my college uh, best friends and I started a nonprofit called The Resolution Project. And that's now the, the largest uh, college social venture accelerator in the world. So we're in like 80 countries, 30 states across the U.S. or something. And uh, college kids who want to start socially responsible ventures, we help them, we fund them, we get them going. So I guess you could call me if you wanted to like distill it down. I help entrepreneurs start socially responsible businesses uh, and uh, have a ton of fun doing it. Awesome, man. I, so let's let's keep going on that on that thread. Uh, how did that become the thing for you? And I'm also really interested in how you got your break into venture capital, because there's always like some backdoor way that this kind of stuff ends up happening. Right. It's not straightforward. So uh, I'd love to touch on both of those. How did you get the passion for social impact um, from a venture perspective? And then how did you actually get into the venture game? Yeah, I mean, you know, venture capital really for me, and it's funny, I say this a lot, right? I say uh, there's different ways of doing this. I'm a builder, not a gambler. Um, and so when you think of it that way, right? I mean, I, and I'm sure you were the same way, Marcus. I'm the same like, way. 
if you look at the, you know, if you looked at like whatever playground I might've been on in recess when we were in elementary school, if there was something that had been started, I probably had started it. I was like the instigator for whatever small business lemonade stand was going on or whatever. Yeah. Um, and so once you get that bug, right, you love to work with people. And I did realize though, pretty early on, uh, whether I was working with college organizations or doing early in my career, you know, consulting work, that I was really good at helping other people realize their ideas. I'm not sitting there thinking about the app that I think I should launch. I'm like talking to my friends who have an app saying, well, here's 15 things you should do. Yeah. And that really was a big thing for me, but you're totally right about the big break. I don't know. This must happen to you tons of times, but people will say, how do you get into venture capital? Like what is the door? And I'm like, I don't, there isn't one, you know, um, but it's always some sort of a weird thing for me. Um, it was actually confusion. And what I mean by that, Marcus, is that uh, I was confused. I was working with some friends of mine who had some startups and some ideas, and I was wondering why the venture capital industry was structured the way that it is. And we can talk about that more mm -hmm. if you want. And also, to be frank with you, like where was impact and where was diversity in this ecosystem? It was missing. And so when the 08 downturn happened, I went to a great mentor of mine who's older, more experienced, better connected and um, had managed a huge pension fund. And I said, let's reboot venture capital together. Let's do something different. And that's what we did. Wow. So it was a big break. And he put me in the game, no doubt about it. Yeah, yeah. So so let's let's talk more about, about social impact because that, um, that term means different things to different people. And I mean, especially once you start getting into the for-profit investing space, it gets confusing. I mean, there's everything from like social impact bonds mm -hmm. to, to impact funds. Um, to, you know, what you're talking about, uh, with, with your, with, is it the resolution project? Yep. yep. Yeah. So, so talk a little bit about this, this, this term social impact as it pertains to being an investor in that space. Like, you know, how, how do you frame that up? How do you think about it when you look at something? How do you say, yes, that is actually social impact versus mm, maybe not. Totally, totally. Look, I live for the day when we've all decided on the same criteria and we all know what we're talking <laughs> about, right? If, if, you know, if you look at just this pure, you know, pure public markets investing, you know, if you look at, at, you know, a quarterly report, all the data is there, everyone kind of understands it. That has not happened in the impact space. So let's just start with that. So then what happens is you start thinking, well, what is the definition? And it, it ends up being a pretty personal thing as an investor. So I'll tell you our rubric. Before I do that, the one thing I wanted to share is that impact investing is often thought of as its own asset class. It's like, oh, he has a venture fund and he has an impact fund and she has a hedge fund, right? The truth is it's not. It's a little bit like good sportsmanship and sports. And so you could think about like, yes, there's bonds, there's philanthropy, there's you know public markets investing, there's moonshot venture capital, all sorts of different ways. And if you have an impact lens sitting over the way you invest, then you're an impact investor. Um, and it also doesn't mean that you, you choose to make less money. If you want to use your money to invest in things that aren't going to be unicorns, but that might be great for communities, it just means a different return. It doesn't mean you're some special, less, less capitalist person, right? Um, so for us, what we use is, and, and I can talk more about it if you want, is what we call the four Ps. Uh -huh. So for us, companies at HL Ventures have to be companies that protect and or promote people and or the planet. Love it. That's that's very straightforward. It's a very clear rubric, and it should be very easy to sort of look at the the mission and vision and and uh, outcomes that a company is living by and creating, and tell whether or not it fits that rubric. I I just want to say that in terms of your differentiation between impact funds being a different asset class and just being good sportsmanship, I love that. 
I love that. And I also feel like we're 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 evolving more into this place where we're 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 having that conversation that stop trying to make impact investing a different asset class, right? Mm-hmm. And the the bigger issue with that is this idea that somehow you should expect lower returns. Right? Um, totally. Now, 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 how how does that actually play out? How does it pl- do? We are we at a point now where we have enough data um, that do do we have enough data that we can prove? Hey, this is good business too. You know, to to invest in these companies actually generates equal or maybe even in some cases better returns. Are we are we there yet? I think we're I think we're getting there. I think that first of all, I mean, there's definitely some great scholarship uh, on, for example, uh, investing in women or investing in other uh, diverse entrepreneurs. Like the the I think I'm I'm not going to get the statistic right, so I won't bother guessing. But there is demonstrable um, better outcomes when you invest in female founding companies, for example, mm-hmm. and that's that's been you know, there's a lot of scholarship on that. Mm-hmm. So we know this, um, and and there's definitely been more successes. You know, you know as well as I do that. The venture game plays out over a decade. It's funny, actually, quick side story. Um, I probably wouldn't have even been on this podcast a couple of years ago because my partner, Eric, and I had said, we're not going to do anything public about our firm. That's probably why people on this uh, that are listening today are like, we've never heard of this guy and his firm. Um, we shook hands and we said, it takes a decade to figure out if you're any good at VC. So we're just going to be quiet until we know. And thankfully for us, it's been going well on this thesis. Um, but I really think that, you know, we're starting to see that edging out of the data where it's clear that there are really big success stories and impact. Um, and, and especially depending on how you define it, like there's protective industries that have already done really well. Like mm-hmm. uh, we have an argument for pe- with, with people about cybersecurity, for example, when you think about it, right, it's not cybersecurity, it's not renewable energy, it's not financial inclusion, it's not education, but it doesn't dig anything terrible out of the ground, doesn't blow anything up, yep. and it protects people's livelihood, privacy, financial your infrastructure, national security. Like that's an impact investment in our mind. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I think that that's why the rubric is so helpful, right? Because it yeah. it stops taking it stops approaching it like we're investing in nonprofits, but from a for profit perspective, and it starts really looking at okay, what are you really doing as a business? You know, what are you re- what do you what are you, what are you after here and are you a for-profit? And I think at that intersection is where social impact investing lives. So, so you said you, you didn't want to talk about this publicly until you knew if you were any good. So how, so how long have you been doing this now? This is year 11. Year 11. Okay. So you waited out the full decade. You guys had discipline. Wow. That's, that's, uh, that's impressive. That's impressive. And, and, and what have you, and, and as a fellow venture capitalist, I know, I, I don't want to ask anything inappropriate, right. But like, Give, give me some of the high level lessons that you learned. Obviously, if you're out talking about it, you guys and you're continuing to do it, you guys feel like, you know, you've learned some things. You're, you're, you're certainly credible. You're capable. You're going to continue down this path. But what are some of the, some of the big things you've learned uh, over the last decade? Because you're right. A decade is a long enough time to kind of understand what you're doing, who you are and, and, and how good you are at this. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, uh, first of all, uh, we would need a much longer podcast to tell you everything <laughs> we've learned. And we, I still feel so much like we're at the beginning, to be honest with you, a decade or not. Um, but there's so much of, of, you know, and if you think about impact investing just specifically right to your question, uh, one of the things we've learned is it's really important to try and understand when that should be uh, the forefront of the conversation and when just the basic business stuff should be at the forefront of the conversation. And so much of what we do with our companies 
is the basic business stuff, right? It's structure, it's, you know, uh, you know, the next raise, it's, you know, recruiting the right people, building culture. Um, but I, I have found in my career, and this is my experience, is not science, but a, scientifically within my experience, um, that impactful companies with a mission also tend to have stronger cultures, more loyal investors, just things about the companies feel better in my experience. Mm -hmm. and, and that's been a big learning as well uh, and a big benefit to the, to the companies. And the last thing is, look, there's just been an enormous amount of listening and learning, Marcus, like especially working with some of the, the diverse entrepreneurs that we have in our portfolio, just understanding the struggle. They've been through the frustration and understanding how to, to deploy a little bit of listening and empathy instead of trying to have all the answers too has been really important. Um, having, you know, for the last decade or for whatever uh, portion of the last decade focused on not just impact, but also investing in diverse founders, you know, um, how do you and your partner feel in this moment? You know, um, everybody sort of looking at the systems that underlie this country, certainly economically, there's a, a tremendous amount of systemic racism that's just embedded uh, in things. And that's demonstrable. All the data sort of points to that. Um, how do you feel about where you're positioned? How do you feel about, um, you know, what you've learned and how you can take that uh, specifically in your investments in, in diverse founders, uh, you know, into the, into the next 10 years uh, of, of your firm? Yeah, I mean, first of all, you, you have to be in a moment like this with a lot of humility um, and recognize also like there's lots of good things happening. Um, and, and, you know, why are these things happening right now is the result of some tragedies, some of which, well, all of which have been playing out for generations, right? So um, just, um, you know, you got to keep all those things balanced in your mind. Um, you know, I'll give you an example, as I'm sure you've noticed, a lot of venture capital firms and large institutional funders are suddenly super interested in this space. Um, and I think, you know, I have to separate in my mind the the honest reaction of like, Oh, welcome. Like, I'm so glad to see you now interested in this, but then also welcoming the capital because if it's 10 or a hundred X more money available for founders of uh, different colors, different genders, et cetera, then that's wonderful. If the black founders in our portfolio and at resolution project are accessing more capital, that's good. So you, you have to kind of box up the slight frustration of like, where have you been this whole time? Um, but look, change has to happen, right? So that's been big. And then look, I think the other thing, and, and, and this is one of those things I've mentioned listening before, uh, we have some truly extraordinary entrepreneurs in our portfolio and uh, as resolution fellows and to talk to them, to read what they have been writing, to recognize the pent up emotions that they have and their management challenges, managing teams um, and what they've been through has been just a roller coaster of education and being there with them and just being able to talk to them at all hours of the night and things like that. So um, yeah, it's a complicated moment, but if this leads us to more capital and more attention for a truly more colorful and diverse innovation sector, then it's a big win. I, I love that last part that you said um, around uh, li listening. Um, and I don't even want to say that it's listening differently, but it is absolutely true that this moment has given space for a different level of conversation, right? Um, you know, my my partner in, in in our venture firm is white, and he and I are having conversations. We've been we've been partners at at, at one level or another for a decade now, mm -hmm. and in the last you know sixty days, we've had conversations we haven't had over the last ten years. Um, you know, and it it is because the 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 overarching conversation is bringing you know quite frankly white people into an awareness of something that previously uh, 
speaking on as a black or brown or, or even a female founder would have been a disadvantage. So like, you know, the, the, these were things that, 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 um, you know, uh, diverse founders always knew, but sp there was no advantage to saying them. Cause you'd be, Oh, you know, you're, you're pulling the race card or, Oh, you know, you're being bitter or angry or, you know what I mean? Like all those kinds of things. And now that's being put aside and we're able to sort of have this conversation just without those labels, without, without that downside to sort of speaking, um, and that's great because I, you know, I love the idea that uh, not necessarily that you're listening differently, you know, uh, you know, you, you've invested in these founders, you've been supportive of them, but now you're getting to hear something from them that maybe you weren't able to hear before because they didn't feel that they could do it and not actually do damage to their business, you know, which I think is a very, very real thing. Yeah, I mean, it's actually been a long running conversation with many of them over the years. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking of one in particular who I don't know, I don't know how much he wants me to talk about his name. Yeah, but that's, he's that's okay. Truly, you can always tell me afterwards and we can, you know, uh, I will yeah. do, you should get him on, by the way. I, I'll be, Let's do in, that in a few weeks. Yeah. Uh, so but he's, a, he's uh, one of the most remarkable people I've ever had the, the chance to work with. And for him, you know, it has been a multi-year struggle of trying to understand where his being black fits into his story as an entrepreneur, right? And and you don't always want to be introduced on stage as the black tech founder. Um, you want to be an entrepreneur, and you are also black, right? And but you know, also like, does that confer some? Um, you know, does that? put him in a place where people need to hear him now and where that needs to be more forefront. Yes. But I think, you know, you're absolutely right, right? This idea of like, where does your identity and your work meld and how can you keep one from defining the other, but, but they're naturally related, you know, that's been really complicated and that's been a place where we've been happy to offer what advice we could, but also just being there for the conversation is important. That's awesome. That's awesome. Let's talk about um, the resolution project. Uh, you know, that's, that's, that's one area that, uh, I'll admit I hadn't uh, dug into a whole lot, but um, sounds like something you you've you made uh, you know tremendous impact with. So talk about the, the founding of it and uh, and just a little bit more color on what it is. Uh, <clears throat> the founding story is hilarious because uh, I so. Uh, as if I weren't nerdy enough already, uh, I uh, used to do this thing in college uh, and high school called Model UN, where you simulate the United Nations. So uh, all the audience now can laugh at me. It's cool. Um, but but we really felt pretty cool about it. But I will tell you the interesting thing about it, right? So you do the simulation work. That's cool. But what's interesting is all these conferences, they bring together thousands of young people who want to make a difference. And if you look beyond the subject matter of Model UN, you'll find that there's political conferences, there's, you know, model congresses, there's international youth conferences. Basically think about like whenever young people get pulled together. So we we ran one of these things in college, two of my best friends and me. And uh, we, we graduated, we went to work, we learned some stuff, we started hearing about social entrepreneurship and stuff bubbling up in the corner. This is the early 2000s now, because I'm that old. And, uh, and we, we said to ourselves, like, what happens if we would take this back to the old Model UN conference we used to run and see if one or two kids would want to start a project? And so we actually called it the World Month Alumni Project or World Map. That was the original name. And we were like, maybe, maybe, maybe one or two people, maybe we'll raise a couple grand. So we went out to the conference. And uh, it was it, it was always it's always in a different city every year around the world. And in Geneva, we had <clears throat> something like 2000 kids attending and we had a room for a lunch with 75 chairs. And we were like, we'll do the social entrepreneurship, you know, meetup. Uh, like almost a thousand kids tried to get into the room. It wow. was the biggest outpouring of interest. And please, you know, fund us and help us and mentor us and like go back and build something so you can help. 
Um, and so that's what we did. So Resolution Project was born that way. Mm. Now, you know, fast forward 11 years, we do competitions all around the world, usually in person, not lately. Um, but literally, like we'll have competitions in New York and we'll have them in Africa every year. We'll have them in Southeast Asia, Australia, Latin America, everywhere. Always about college kids with their very first social venture. And the thing with us is we're the first believer. So we'll give them anywhere between one and 10 grand usually. Uh, lifetime mentorship as long as they're involved in social impact and we watch them go and you, you'd be amazed what's happened. That's amazing. And, and, and tell me again, how many, uh, how, how, how many uh, individuals or groups have gone through this program now over the course of the last 11 years? Yeah, we have just about 550 fellows. I'm wow. off by a few, but it's right around that. Yeah. So, and by the way, like it's the, the, so first of all, from a diversity perspective, right? I mean, women of color, uh, you know, military veterans, like everything you can imagine, all starting in college, but also geographically diverse from the 80 countries. And I think it's 23 states, if memory serves. Um, but then the diversity of what they're trying to do. So there's like, tiny little mentorship programs. And then there's massively venture backed social enterprises in the direct consumer food industry and everything in between. And what you end up finding is that it's actually the, the act of starting the thing that creates the moment of responsible leadership that we're looking for. Mm. That's the key. Mm. Yeah. So, so that, I mean, I love this. And, and by the way, just a, just a, a quick uh, logistical thing is the, is the one to 10 grand. Is that a grant? It's Grant. So Grant, yeah, okay, amazing. So, so that, so this first believer, um, you know, moment that is not transactional because it establishes a lifelong relationship. They become a fellow, so that this is like once a fellow, always a fellow kind of thing, right? You got it. Um, and and then what you've seen over the course of eleven years is that that is actually the most important thing to something magical happening. To to you know, and and I I love that because people. Um, people don't understand how magical it is to see what happens on the other end of starting something. And then they wonder why, like some people do thing after thing, after thing, after thing, after thing. And it was all that first thing, you know, it was that first thing where they got over whatever that fear was of in, in the uncertainty. And then they know, Oh, this is how you actually start something. You know, totally. once you have that as an asset from, from an experience perspective, perspective the confidence around that comes with that and the skills that, that come with how to start something your ability to be like a world changer and do thing after thing after thing are just they're basically unlimited you know and that's so much of that is like my own my own story that i just love uh i love that you're you're finding those people those and, and i also love the fact that you know you you started this thing and you had a thousand people because i've got a i've got a basic uh idea and premise which, which is uh a big part of my book is that there aren't enough institutions like that in the world today. There are far too many institutions forcing these ambitious creative rebels, you know, into systems that are more about compliance and more about, you know, um, status quo. And, and these people, they can't find their tribe. They can't find their people. They can't find that first believer who says, no, 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 you're not crazy. Like this thing you want to do, go do it. And if you fail, who cares? Right. Yeah. You know, you, you can have a career of trying and, and you'd be amazed at what can happen in a career of trying. And, and I just, so I just love this, uh, that, that you've built this institution around, around this idea of being that first believer, writing that first check, doing it as a grant. So there isn't sort of, sort of that weight that comes with the equity piece, you know, and, th and then you're like supporting them forever. That's, that's so cool. 
Totally. You know, uh, so many thoughts as you were talking just now about <laughs> the, the nexus between what you what you're expressing and, and our experience of resolution. It's it's huge. Um, you know, a few things. Uh, number one, we did a survey pretty early in the project. We do it now every year, obviously. And uh, the number one value of the resolution fellowship. And it's not that they were undervaluing the cash grant or anything like that, but it was um, what there's no elegant way to say this, but it was mitigating loneliness. It was, they weren't lonely anymore. It's very lonely to start something, right? The idea that they had this like global band of, of sisters and brothers, uh, and then these mentors and people who've done this, you'll climb the mountain before the Sherpas, if you will, um, was really meaningful to them. Um, and then the other thing is, you know, I, I wrote a piece of a couple of years back in, in Fast Company um, on, you know, what failing forward means to people who don't have privilege. Mm. Um, because this idea that you should like break things quickly and you know if you raise a few hundred grand from you know people sitting around your college and and then it, it doesn't work, you'll be on to the next thing. But for a lot of communities, you blow the first chance, there won't be a second. The first chance is hard enough. That's right. right. That's right. And so having a, an ecosystem around that is really important. And the last thing I'll, I'll say from what you mentioned is is it flows directly from that is you're right. There's a lack of what we would call the ecosystem building organizations. Where 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 are the coral reefs that create the the beautiful flora and fauna of entrepreneurship? Because they don't just come out of nowhere, right? And up until now, it's been a very rarefied, very few cities in the world with a specific mixture of wealthy people and institutions and universities that have been the coral reefs. If we can't get that more generalized and more geographically diverse, um, then we will have a limited aperture on innovation and creativity. And this is not a time in human history where that is acceptable. Okay, you just hit into the the, the final point that I want to, and you, perfect segue, uh, this time in human history, right? Um, this is obviously a tremendously challenging time. Um, and one of the things that people have asked me a lot over the last week or so, given the fact that I just launched a book is, man, what does it feel like to launch a book during a pandemic? right? You can't do all the things that you would normally do. You can't do a book tour. You can't do live speaking, right? All these things. And, and they're absolutely right. Um, however, there, there are two things um, that I always am able to say. One, this book is about the, it's the gospel of entrepreneurship, basically. It's my gospel of entrepreneurship. And it is about the fact that entrepreneurship is accessible to everybody. And it is my strong assertion that Right now, in this moment in history, we are going to need a ton of entrepreneurship. Like, we don't even know how much entrepreneurship we're going to need in this moment because all of the great, stable, status quo stuff has been so fundamentally disrupted for such an uncertain period of time that, like, we're going to have to create new ways to do so many things, right? Mm -hmm so many things. And so we're going to need a lot of entrepreneurs to figure this out. You know, we still have money out there in this economy. It just ain't moving because the stuff that used to provide value doesn't provide value anymore. So we got to figure out new ways to provide this necessary value in a very, very different world. So that's one thing. The second thing is as an entrepreneur uh, and a creative entrepreneur specifically, all this was, was another problem to solve. Right. You know what I mean? So in this in this moment, I created this show and, you know, staying busy, staying creative uh, and, and solving problems for myself is ending up solving problems for other people. It's giving people platform It's giving people new information. And, you know, there's a huge opportunity in this really challenging time to come up with the solutions that we need, you know, and and 
figuring out new ways to launch a book falls in that category. You know, like how do you get a really, really important piece of work out to the world when all the previous channels weren't there anymore? You know, so I say all that to say and then ask you sort of the final question in this moment i you know i know i've experienced it with my portfolio some companies are like going through the the, the moon right you know what i mean with with everything that's happening some are really challenged you know what what has been your perspective to date uh you know now that we're 100 plus days into this thing what has been your perspective to date on the role and the importance of innovation and entrepreneurship in this pandemic that we're all experiencing uh, well, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's never been more important. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll say something a little controversial, or at least it got me in trouble the other day, which is, um, I, so I studied military history and national security in college, oddly enough. And, um, this most reminds me of wartime, um, it, where by the way, innovation gets a huge kick in the pants. Um, I, I, I once was on a panel and I got the question, what would be the single fastest way to spur innovation in America? And I said, we could go to war. I don't recommend it, but I'm just saying that's usually the fastest way to get innovation. Yeah. Did not go well on the panel, by the way, right. it's not appreciated. Right. But, uh, but the point stands, which is that in times of enormous adversity and, and threat is when we get most creative as people. Um, and certainly our country has that reservoir. And I will say again, at the risk of being controversial, um, that the less leadership and guidance we have from various important quarters, the more important it is that we take matters into the hands of the most creative and, and innovative people in our society. And that means, you know, entrepreneurs um, and trying to solve problems. And, you know, look, when you think about it, right, we're all at some point strategically at the mercy of, you know, innovators in science who are thinking about vaccines. And, uh, and in the meantime, we've got super creative people trying to get protective equipment and, you know, uh, data surveillance systems to better track cases. So just even in the most obvious ways, innovation has a, a, an importance. But to your question, Marcus, about the portfolio and how to think about that, you know, I mean, we're, we're blessed that we've been thinking about impact and diversity for 11 years. Mm -hmm. And it happens to be there's a bit of a moment for companies that are good for the world mm -hmm. and that have diverse founders at the moment. Um, but the other thing that I'll share with you is, you know, uh, my partner, Eric, the H and HL, uh, Eric Hatsumemo. So Eric and I worked together through uh, the aftermath of 9-11. I came to work for him just after that. Uh, and I had a national security background coming out of, of some prior work. And then in 2008, we were working together just starting this firm. So we've had a couple of you know, moments of crisis and economic disruption under our belts together as a team. And just like, you know, a mountain climbing team that's seen avalanches before, we we were just like ready for this, right? And, and, and it's not to say that it's easy and that we didn't lose sleepless nights and hair and all sorts of other stuff, but um, but it just meant that we were able to then move you know, carefully but aggressively in support of our companies and making new deals and new investments, which in the venture world have been few and far between recently. And it's because in times of crisis, you can achieve some differentiation. And so many people in the venture world started sometime after the last crisis, and it's been pretty blue skies uh, since then. And so we're in a moment now where people who've seen tough times before, I think, can start to step aside and differentiate a little bit and help galvanize the innovation that you were talking about, which is so critical to get through this time, which we will get through. Mm -hmm. But I'll say the last thing I'll share with you, I know I've been talking for a minute here, Marcus, yep. is this is a weird crisis, right? Like, if you get hit by a hurricane, of course, like whether you're prepared or not has a, you know, makes a difference and local leadership makes a difference and federal disaster support. But there's a limited personal agency that you can take. The coronavirus, 
of course, we need leadership from on high. We need doctors and science and all that, but also we need people to do basically smart things. And we've never had more agency in how quickly we can get out of this and how safe we remain during that time than as a society if we decide to be, uh, you know, responsible and innovative together. So, mm. I, I, you know, and I, I really have faith in us. I think we can do it, but the, the call is for us to make, right? Man, amazing way to, to wrap up. I told you 30 minutes would go super fast, uh, okay. right? Uh, awesome conversation, Oliver. We'll have to have you back, man, and 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 talk more because I think this uh, I think this 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 topic um, of diverse leaders and impact companies is nowhere near its crescendo. And so, you know, as we start seeing more and more headlines around this and more and more things really start to take shape, I want to bring you back on uh, to, to talk more about it in depth because I think there will be a lot more to talk about. I think the landscape's going to change. I think there is going to be a lot of capital moved in this direction. Um, and I think, uh, I hope uh, that society hears that last bit that you said, um, is able to hold on to some optimism and can kind of rally behind the innovators because you're absolutely right. That's who we're going to need. Well, thank you. I really, I would love to come back. Maybe we'll bring some of our entrepreneurs as well. And I uh, really appreciate you and what you're writing and what you're doing, Marcus. So keep it going. And thank you for having me. I'm so grateful. Awesome, man. Thanks so much to everybody out there. Uh, you couldn't do it for the last 10 years, but you can now. He's open to talk in the world. So you can follow follow Oliver out there. Uh, Oliver B. Libby on Twitter, uh, Olibby on Facebook and on LinkedIn and H dash l dot vc is the is the website for the firm so uh if you want to learn more about oliver and everything that he's doing i absolutely recommend that you follow him out there uh the book create and orchestrate still out still doing great please go purchase a copy would love for you to uh read it pick it apart i don't care but uh get it in your hands importantly get it in the hands of somebody young uh, i think it will really help them to open their eyes to a world maybe they haven't heard about before the podcast marcus whitney's audio universe get it everywhere that you get podcasts and find Finally, follow me everywhere online at Marcus Whitney. And that is it. I'm going into the weekend. I'm so excited to take a break. It's been a great two weeks since the launch of the book. Great shows for two weeks straight. Um, and uh, I'm excited. There's a lot of good energy out there right now. But um, also uh, pretty solemn about, you know, the, the growth of cases in the coronavirus uh, that, that are happening in this country. So I am praying for anybody who's, who's been affected by that. Uh, you know, we've got people very close to us that we've learned about recently that have been affected. And so everyone just just be safe, take care of each other, um, and uh, continue to be thoughtful, but be innovative. And let's build the new normal, y'all. Peace. Thank you for tuning in to Marcus Whitney's Audio Universe. 